Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 75 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of 2018 False Claims Act prosecutions. To help us review this issue, I'm proud to introduce Jessica Anderson, who recently joined as of counsel at the Volkoff Law Group. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today uh, for on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and rate the podcast to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides False Claims Act compliance and litigation services. We have assisted companies in protecting against False Claims Act cases by implementing robust ethics and compliance programs. Also, we've represented clients in False Claims Act cases and in matters before the U.S. Department of Justice and individual U.S. attorneys' offices. Uh, if you're interested in our services in this uh, area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, I'm happy to welcome Jessica and uh, Sanderson to our podcast. Jessica joined our firm recently as of counsel. We are very, very, very lucky to have her. And uh, welcome, Jessica. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Uh, for our listeners, Jessica, uh, since this is your first podcast, please uh, tell, tell everybody about what you've been doing up to now. Of course. So I most recently worked for about five years as in-house counsel at a publicly traded company. Um, and I worked on various legal and compliance issues and oversaw litigation. And, um, you know, significantly for this, I saw the company through an external compliance monitorship. And then before that, I was at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher in Denver, practicing there for about 10 years in the white collar litigation group. Well, uh, Jessica, you recently, your first post on our blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, was about, uh, provided a comprehensive survey or summary of 2018 False Claims Act activity. Uh, you also had a lot of fancy uh, graphs, which were beautifully done. Um, and so I'm looking forward to reviewing those here today. Um, and we're not going to go, obviously, it's hard to uh, do that on a podcast to look at the, but if people can um, look at the posting, they can get uh, more detailed information, and we're happy to uh, answer any questions uh, based on the data that you put together. But let's just uh, sort of go back, take a step back and say, so what kind of year for DOJ, for the Justice Department, was this? Uh, 2018, this past year, for the False Claims Act prosecutions? Sure. So um, it was a big year for them, as it as it has been in the last several years. Um, the Department of Justice, and I may often refer to them as DOJ, um, recovered, you know, $2.8 billion, almost $3 billion under the False Claims Act. And it's funny, you read these year in reviews that are put out by um, various firms, including ours, and you know, it always it always starts out with how staggering the numbers are, you know, because they're in the billions of dollars. Um, but it's really true. And it's it's kind of how it's been for the last several years. So, in fact, you know, for 2018, the recoveries are actually a, about a half a billion dollars lower than they were in 2017. And uh, some might think that this is a reflective of a downward trend. But I, I tend to think that uh, we are going to still see recoveries upwards of two, three billion for the next several years. Well, it's like uh, half a billion here, half a billion there, <laughs> um, you know, um, 
and and I I don't think there's much to be gleaned from this in terms of this doesn't indicate that they're you know lessening their enforcement activities that they're instituting new approaches uh, that are going to have any big change in the a lot of this is so institutionalized particularly in the healthcare industry that uh, absolutely not, yeah it's not going to really change that much but so what um, I mean in terms of the trends and you know were there any things that caught your eyes in terms of a significant change or trend uh, over the last few years? Well, I do think you know healthcare matters from everything we've seen, um, especially in the healthcare area, are going to continue to be a focus of attention. Um, you know, for 2018, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this later. Um, healthcare matters were a, I think, the highest percentage of the recoveries in this area in the False Claims Act area that we've seen. Um, and you know, in terms of of trends, again, if you just look at the last three years since 2016, there were almost 2,500 new False Claims Act matters opened, um, both by you know key TAM individual relators and the government. And False Claims Act matters, you know, they take a, especially the large scale healthcare ones can take some time to investigate and resolve. Um, so we'll start to see the results of those in the numbers in the coming years. Um, and then also, you know, in mid-2018, then Attorney General Sessions announced hiring more than 300 new assistant U.S. attorneys, including um, the civil enforcement prosecutors who would be enforcing the Civil False Claims Act. So with more resources and, and lots of new cases, um, you know, I don't think we should expect any type of, of downward trend. It's going to stay pretty much the same or possibly even go up. And one important thing that I always uh, point out, even in the FCPA area, the FCA area, is you follow the resources. Wherever the resources go, people have to produce. So if you have, let's say, 86, I think you said, new civil enforcement prosecutors, they've got to justify their existence. And that means either bringing new cases or moving existing cases uh, more rapidly. So those are important numbers to watch. I always tell people to watch those because those are probably the best indicator of trends to come. Um, what about um, let's uh, let's sort of look at some of the other statistical trends that you wrote about in your article. Um, uh, what about whistleblowers? Um, what are, what are you seeing in terms of whistleblowers? And obviously. Uh, all you have to do is Google whistleblowers and you'll see about, you know, 3000 attorneys who are ready to take on cases. So. Right. Right. Well, so, you know, it was in the mid 90s, I mean, mid 80s, excuse me, 1986, that Congress enacted the provisions. They're called key TAM provisions that allow individuals um, known as relators to file the civil actions under the False Claims Act on behalf of the government. And then they would share in, in any of recovery. And it's up to 30 percent of recovery. Um, and so if you look at what happened, you know, starting shortly after that in 1987, um, not surprisingly, you know, none of the recoveries came from key time actions for a while. But if you look at the whole time span, which are on some of our graphs on the blog, you, since the passage of the key time provisions, the relators have both initiated the majority of false claims actions. So 71 percent of all new matters are coming from whistleblowers as opposed to self-disclosures or government investigations. And then the government's recoveries have just skyrocketed. So from 1986 through 2018, the government recovered just over $59 billion under the False Claims Act, and whistleblowers were responsible for $42.5 billion of that, which is about 72%. 
Um, and then if you just look at the past government fiscal year, 2018 alone, whistleblowers initiated 84% of the new matters and accounted for 73% of the government's recoveries. Um, so I think what we see from the, again, the diagrams that are on the blog, if, if uh, folks are interested in seeing this, um, and I, th I do think it's helpful to look at the statistics that they put out in, in chart or visual form. Um, but what you, you see clearly, which anyone practicing in this area can tell you, is, is that whistleblowers are really the driving force behind civil FCA enforcement. Um, and there really is no sign of that activity letting up because, you know, there's both strong whistleblower incentives, the share awards that they get, and then there are very strong whistleblower protections. Um, and we've seen that expanded in, in all areas of the law, too. That's just not just under the False Claims Act, but also under the SEC and FCPA. Um, the government is, is very much encouraging whistleblowers to come forward. Um, and so we, we definitely expect individuals and the, plain, the plaintiff's bar to continue to push FCA enforcement into 2019 and the foreseeable future. Yeah, one, one of the, uh, you know, I always tell people also that the False Claims Act is more, uh, is a bigger risk for a lot of companies than the FCPA. Um, and that's because it's so easy to bring a case and there are whistleblowers who can get lawyers to represent them on contingency. And then all they have to do is convince the government about something. And if the government intervenes, that's the end of the case. Um, and so what I've encouraged, and, and I'm like a broken record on this, is the companies that are subject to regulation, like the defense companies, the healthcare uh, companies, um, they really need to, you know, develop robust compliance programs. And what do you what do you see in terms of the implications of this continuing growth of the False Claims Act recoveries and whistleblowers? I mean, what are people supposed to do in terms of trying to get a compliance program together to prevent it from happening? Right. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think now more than ever, it's important to have very robust compliance programs um, because you don't want, you know, what might start out as a mistaken false claim to turn into something that actually, you know, you should have known better um, and a real false claim. And you don't want your employees assuming that there was some type of fraudulent intent when something may have been just, a, you know, an error. So what I say is, you know, obviously you need to have a strong compliance program and it has to have internal controls that are designed, you know, to prevent the submission of false claims. But if it doesn't prevent it, then you need to go further and, and try to detect it. So you have routine audits and, and you, you work hard to detect any errors that may be there. Um, and, you know, a very essential part of any good compliance program, and especially in this area, is to have effective reporting mechanisms. Um, and if there are reports, then a swift response and, and follow-up action. Because, you know, here, if whistleblowers are truly motivated to do the right thing, um, you know, if they want to stop the submission of false claims, um, and they're not simply looking to profit from, you know, an FCA claim that they may have stumbled upon, then if they feel they have a safe place to be heard internally, um, whether that's through an anonymous reporting line or just reporting to a supervisor who takes their, their report seriously and acts on it, um, and then they feel that the company acts to remedy whatever the issue may be, then those whistleblowers are going to 
be a lot less likely to initiate a, a key TAM action. I just don't see them, most of them, um, you know, some may have a profit motive, especially we'll talk about this a little later, the sort of professional relators, quote unquote. But I think most people who are working internally who have an issue and feel like they have a safe place to report it internally and, and get remedies that they're satisfied with, they're not going to run to court and hire a lawyer and bring a key TAM lawsuit. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, too, if entities that do business with the government, if they receive any kind of eternal reports or suspicions of potential FCA violations, um, then they can they're in a position to swiftly stop the potential misconduct. Um, even if it happened before, by stopping it, they can greatly reduce potential damages uh, because under the False Claims Act, not only are the damages trebled, they're tripled, but you have per claim penalties. And so they can grow exponentially very quickly. So a company, again, if they have an internal report, they can stop the bleeding um, and they can make an informed decision whether to self-disclose if it really was a problem. Um, and the DOJ, the Department of Justice, has repeatedly emphasized over the last few years in this area and others like the FCPA that companies that are trying to do the right thing and conduct ethical business and promptly disclose potential issues, they're going to receive cooperation credit. Um, and, and the damages and penalties are going to be far less than they would have been um, have, had companies tried to, to hide the activity. Um, and if you want to jump into, you know, just a little bit of incentives that uh, whistleblowers have, again, I mentioned earlier that they can receive up to 30 percent of any recovery. Um, and since 1987, individual whistleblowers have received more than seven billion dollars in relator share awards. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of that seven billion is probably shared with their attorneys, which is why there's a very strong plaintiff's bar in this area. Uh, the past year, 2018 alone, relators received just over $300 million in awards. Um, again, it's it's down significantly from 2017. And in terms of relator share awards, it's actually the lowest number we've seen since 2009. Um, but I, I don't expect that downward trend to continue. Um, again, in, in 2009, and I won't go into detail, but Congress expanded the scope of the False Claims Act. And part of that was to enforce and augment the whistleblower protections. So since then, since 2009, which is the past nine years of the statistics, um, so if you if you think about it, it's one third of the total time frame, but those the past nine years, the one third of the time frame actually re represents two thirds of the total awards. So it's very much stacked in the last several years. Wow. Well, and you know, the 2009 revisions also gave uh, plaintiffs you know, basically, they changed the law uh, and a number of key provisions the plaintiffs have wanted for a long time, uh, including, you know, all anti-kickback claims or now false claims. Uh, so those uh, obviously have had a huge impact since 2009 in the Health Care Act that was passed. But um, and, and you mentioned that I mentioned earlier you know, the government conducts an investigation after a claim comes in. Uh, it's kept under seal while they're investigating it. And uh, then they make the decision to intervene or not to intervene. And how important uh, is that? Uh, I would say that's critically important. Um, I think both for plaintiff's lawyers and defendant's lawyers, that is the most important time of the case is when you are talking to the government to decide whether they're going to intervene or not. Um, and that's because, you know, if anything is clear from all of these statistics, it's that 
Um, whistleblowers initiate the vast majority of False Claims Act cases, but if the government doesn't intervene, um, then the government as a whole recovers, you know, far less and relators recover far less when um, the relator is left to stand and, and litigate the case without the government's involvement. Now, importantly, if the government doesn't intervene, um, you know, the relator can still continue with the case and the government uh, will be sort of in the background following the case. It's it's unusual, but it is certainly possible that the government could actually not intervene and move to dismiss the case. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but but, you know, what we do see is that when the government doesn't intervene, um, the recoveries of in any year have never exceeded 17% of the recoveries. So the flip side of that is, you know, roughly 80% or more of the recoveries come from cases where the government does intervene. Um, and then in 2018, if we just look at, again at the past year, recoveries from KETAM cases where the government declined intervention constituted only 4% of the total annual recoveries. Um, so, so you can see there that if the government intervenes, it, it makes a huge difference in the cases. Um, you know, I, I would like to think, or the idealist may think, that the government only decides to intervene in cases that have the most merit. Um, but also, I think everyone understands the reality of when you have the force of the Department of Justice um, as, a, you know, opposing the case and, and or prosecuting the case is quite different than when you just have an individual and the plaintiff's firm. Yep. Yep. That's for sure. So, um, and you have some good charts on this, which make this point very clear in the, uh, on the blog posting. Um, what, is, what is it that um, in terms of the, the settlements um, in the recoveries and you have a good chart, which is uh, recoveries and actions, the government initiated um, and there you basically were able to show that in the last five years alone, uh, between 2014 and 2018, the government initiated 630 new matters. Now, that's a lot uh, in my book, but uh, that's, and you said, I think pointed out, that's an average of more than two new FCA matters per week. Yeah, um, you that that actually was the most shocking thing to me when I looked closely at the government's numbers this year. I don't know that I had focused on that specifically, um, but it, but if you think about that, that's the government on its own. I mean, possibly through self-disclosure from companies, but without a whistleblower or a key TAM action, the government is initiating more than two new matters a week. Um, and if you think about the fact, as we said earlier, that they hired you know more than 80 new or they're in the process of hiring new civil um, assistant United States attorneys, they could be opening more new matters on their own, or at least putting the resources towards investigating those matters. And actually, I wanted to come back to that for one second, because in the when the government announced the hiring, they were specifically saying that a lot of that was to focus on the opioid crisis. Um, right. And, so, you know, where that could come in, you know, cross over here to the False Claims Act analysis could be um, with pharmaceutical companies and, and the drug companies that are in that field. Um, because if they made, for example, false misrepresentations about the drugs and um, otherwise were engaging in any promotional efforts that the government thought was unlawful, you know, that that could certainly be a focus there in the next few years. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And I've, I'm actually fascinated that they they actually initiate that many cases themselves. I thought that they really pretty much relied on uh, relators, but uh, I think they're they're sort of initiating their own investigations now. 
in targeting certain uh, industries. Um, yeah, I checked those numbers a few times because I was surprised as well. Yeah, one thing uh, just uh, is um, how do you see the trends or what are the trends playing out between uh, healthcare, which obviously dominates, uh, but you also have the defense industry and, and frankly, there's a small number of cases uh, involving the financial industry, but how do you see it breaking out primarily between healthcare and the defense sectors? Yeah, well, certainly healthcare dominates the area, um, and it, it certainly has for the last few years. In 2018, this last year, healthcare recoveries accounted for the largest percentage of total annual recoveries since the government first started keeping track of the figures in 1986. Um, so, you know, the, the government statistics show that most FC a recoveries in the last two decades have come from this sector. Um, and then, you know, within the sector, because obviously healthcare uh, encompasses a great number of, you know, from providers to drug companies to device companies, it's a big industry. And so within the, within that area, the DOJ press release this year accompanying its statistics said that the largest recoveries came from the drug and medical device industry. Um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, I think it's going to continue to come from the drug industry and, and most likely the medical device industry as well. Um, and then the DOJ highlighted the re resolution of certain cases in that industry this past year. So there was the Amerisource Bergen Corporation, and that had to do with uh, repackaging certain cancer fighting drugs and providing kickbacks to physicians. And Mike, you just mentioned earlier, again, those amendments which made violations of the, the AKS or the NCA kickback statute, a false claims act allegation. Um, we're right. certainly seeing emphasis there. Um, and then there were claims against Larry for selling um, basically defective medical testing devices. Um, both of those were key TAM cases brought by individuals. But then we saw um, cases that the government initiated on its own that were highlighted um, and they were very similar cases against two different defendants, United Therapeutics and Pfizer. And in both of those cases or, or, or claims, um, the allegations were that uh, the companies were paying kickbacks to, to Medicare patients and basically funneling patients to a nonprofit foundation, which was set up to cover their co-pays. And then the companies were donating the money to the foundation to cover the co-pays. Um, so, well, you know, that, again, that's, a, that's a really controversial area with regard to patient assistance programs. Right. And, uh, and anybody that gets involved in that, it's really, really risky. But um, those two cases are really sort of significant as sort of warning signs in that area. So warning signs in that area. And also, you know, what we talk about in the FCPA area as well is that, you know, you can't use intermediaries to try to accomplish what you can't do directly. Right. Um, these corporations, you know, um, we're trying to do that with the foundation. So right. and the other thing I say in this area, in the healthcare area, Mike, is follow the money. I mean, that's that's how it's been. We've got, you know, everyone knows that the spending on healthcare is just incredible. Um, the government spending. And now we've got an aging baby boom population and rising prices for medical goods and services. And so, you know, a recent report that just came out from the CMS was that our health, our national federal health care spending is projected to grow at an average rate of 5.5% per year from 2017 to 2026, which means by 2026, we're expected to spend $5.7 trillion on wow. That's Medicare and Medicaid. 
Um, and so with that much money being spent, I mean, and all those claims that that represents, um, you, you know, and, and, and add on top of that, the government's resources and, and their strike force teams now, you know, enforcement teams that are combined initiatives between HHS and DOJ, Health and Human Services, sorry. Um, and they're even working together because there's state health care programs, too. And I should mention there are state false claims acts as well. Um, and so now they're working together to to hold uh, companies and individuals reliable. Um, and on that last note, too, on individuals, you know, DOJ has more and more um, over the last you know couple of years signaled its intent to hold individuals accountable and pursue criminal charges, um, you know, which is is jail time for some folks for for Medicare, Medicaid fraud, and other healthcare crimes. Yeah, they brought. Uh, this year, they've been very aggressive on uh, opioid cases and criminal cases. Uh, there's a big one in Ohio, uh, which is stretching into, you know, county to county. So those are uh, big risks. And I still have seen, uh, even in Maryland, we had, I think it was two years ago, we had a doctor who was uh, sentenced to 10 years in jail for Medicare fraud. Um, so... Uh, the the sort of individual prosecution risks are, are significant. What about um, so that's the healthcare industry. What about the defense industry? Is that not as uh, if it's 87 percent is going, you know, is being done with health and human services and, you know, Medicare, Medicaid type of cases. What are we what are the trends you're seeing in the defense industry? Right. Well, you know, in terms of trends, it's actually been a relatively steady percentage of recoveries. Um, never that great of a percentage, but, um, you know, a, a steady part of it. You know, again, in the earlier years, maybe up to 97, 98, uh, defense claims actually were a much greater percentage of the government's recoveries. Um, and it's only been in the later years that we've seen it much more in healthcare. Um, but, you know, I think that they may ramp up the activity in this sector in 2019 and, and into the future. And I know in terms of the numbers, there was already um, a resolution in November of 2018, which is actually part of the, the government's fiscal year 2019. Um, yeah. And that settlement was $236 million with some three South Korean companies. Um, and it had to do with bid rigging and price fixing of fuel supply services to the Department of Defense. Um, but anyway, that single resolution, which will be in the 2019 numbers, is already more than twice the total amount of recoveries in the defense sector for 2018. Um, so the charts are definitely going to show a tick up there in 2019. The one big case I think they brought was against uh, during 2018 fiscal year was against a um, you know, bulletproof vest manufacturer that turned out to be uh, a defective bulletproof vest. So, I mean, talk about a case you don't want to defend. That's one. Right. Uh, <laughs> and actually, Mike, there there were a number of those. That's actually continuing from some in the in the same industry. The bulletproof yeah. vest. I think they're going after sort of all of the defendants that may have been involved in that supply chain and and supplying them. Yeah. Well, and understandably so. Um, one other thing that we saw was with the new administration was we saw some uh, sort of uh, policy changes or, you know, some people thought that this may lead to some reductions in FCA enforcement. I, I don't think it really will. 
But uh, what were the policy changes that came about with this, the new administration under the Sessions when Sessions was there as the attorney general? Right. So, you know, at the start of 2018, there were two DOJ memos that um, we focused on um, that suggested that prosecutors might take a bit of a less aggressive stance towards False Claims Act enforcement during the year. Um, so the first one that came out was actually a leaked memo that was not supposed to be uh, distributed to the public. Um, and that's become known as the Granston memo um, because that was uh, prepared by Granston, who is the director of the commercial litigation branch, the fraud section of DOJ's civil division. And that was directing the DOJ prosecutors to more seriously consider dismissing cases filed under the FCA QTAM provisions. And so again, under the law, um, the government has always had the option to intervene and move to dismiss, but I think it was pretty rarely exercised. They were happy just to decline intervention um, and not go further. Um, and the Granston memo reasoned that dismissal of whistleblower cases um, can be a very important tool to advance the government's interests or to preserve limited resources or to avoid adverse precedent. I mean, recognizing that that there are a lot of reasons that the government may not want to bring a case that a, an individual thinks is important when the individual may not see the big picture and understand um, all the reasons that the government might have to dismiss the case, even if they think it it may have, you know, some merit. I mean, they're obviously not going to move to dismiss a case that's where there's, you know, serious evidence of fraud, um, but they're going to more seriously consider it. And then two weeks later, um, then Associate General, Attorney General, sorry, Rachel Brand issued a memo known as the Brand Memo. Um, and this was really following on to what Sessions had said, which is that they're not, we're not going to, the government's not going to use noncompliance with guidance documents as a basis for proving violations of law, which would include FCA violations. And so this directive would apply, for example, to oftentimes you'll see guidance. Um, billing guidance, which doesn't have the force of law that will come out from Health and Human Services or, you know, CMS, Center for Medicaid or Medicare or the OIG. Um, and then Bren, you know, she was emphasizing the policy that Sessions had um, put out that the DOJ wasn't going to use noncompliance with guidance documents as a basis for proving violations. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine that those two memos cause a little stir in our community. Um, and so the next month in February, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Stephen Cox was giving a speech where he confirmed um, that, that the DOJ won't be using noncompliance with guidance documents to prove a violation of the False Claims Act. Um, and, and he elaborated also that DOJ was planning to focus the limited resources that they had on the most meritorious cases and the most legally viable theories. Um, and, and what I thought was interesting about Cox's speech was that he even went as far as acknowledging the obvious costs on defendants, um, and that's a quote, uh, of opposing meritless Ketam cases. Um, so, you know, recognizing the, the immense costs that defendants face when a private individual is, is bringing this type of action against them. Um, and then, in, you know, towards the end of the year, in September of 2018, um, in a very long-awaited, at least for those of us who practice in this area, updated justice manual, the DOJ officially incorporated much of the substance of those two memos, the Granson and the Brand memos. So, for example, the Justice Manual now, like the Brand memo, provides that uh, criminal and civil enforcement actions brought by the department have to be based on violations of legal requirements and not mere noncompliance with guidance documents. Um, you know, I would note, just as a side, 
guidance documents will still be relevant if they're trying to prove the issue of scienter um, or that the defendant should have known better, for to put it in layman's terms. Um, but the actual violation or noncompliance with those documents is not going to be a violation of law. Um, and then the Justice Manual, also like the Granson Memo, provides a non-exhaustive list of factors that the government will use um, when it is deciding whether to dismiss key time actions. Um, and it repeats a lot of what the memo said, that it's it's a it can be a valuable and important tool to advance the government's interests, um, preserve limited resources and avoid adverse precedent. So, again, you know, I think it's still a bit too soon to tell whether these policy statements are going to result in any tangible change. Um, and you certainly can't see it from, you know, if you just looked at the 2018 statistics, because those numbers uh, in terms of recoveries are based on cases that were probably brought, you know, maybe as much as two, three years ago, because those cases take a while to resolve. Um, but again, by the end of the year, um, the DOJ had followed through on some of this in, in what I think are two very significant ways. Um, so first, they, the government was asked to file an amicus curiae brief in a Supreme Court case um, and a False Claims Act case that was up in front of the Supreme Court still pending, I believe. Um, and the DOJ stated in that case that it had determined if the case were remanded to the district court, the government would move to dismiss the action. Um, wow. Yeah. So that, yeah. Um, at the, and, and when they talked about the factors as to why they would move to dismiss, it, that, you know, they didn't specifically refer to the Granston memo and the justice manual, but it listed the same reasons. Um, and then there was a case, and I, I, this is very interesting, and this is where I referred to earlier, we were going to talk about the professional relator. Um, so there was a case in Texas, and the government moved to dismiss that Ketam case, um, and it signaled its intent to move to dismiss. There were actually 10 similar Ketam cases brought in different judicial districts, I think maybe seven different judicial districts. They were all brought by the same relator against multiple defendants. Um, and the government even quoted that it was a professional relator um, in its motion to dismiss. And so I think, you know, clearly the government determined that the cases lacked merit um, and they risked draining government resources. But I read between the lines in the brief that the DOJ really seemed to express disdain for this uh, plaintiff, this professional plaintiff, because um, it was basically a limited liability company that was established for the sole purpose of serving as the relator in the cases. And it was set up by investors and former Wall Street investment bankers. Um, and in the blog, we have a link to an article about um, one of the investors who started this company, this LLC. Um, and the relator viewed the, the false claims, and this is in quotes, as a massive business opportunity. Um, mm. And then the motion to dismiss said that they had gathered evidence in those cases under, quote, false pretenses, end quote, that they were conducting a research study. So the relator was was reaching out to conduct evidence um, from, you know, potential witnesses saying that they were conducting a research study to get information when really what they were trying to do is gather evidence. Um, and without getting too far into the weeds, you know, to talk about pleading in FCA cases, you know, um, when you plead a case that is fraud, you're supposed to have what they call particularized pleading. And so this were 10, you know, 11 different cases where they were 
quote, you know, copying and pasting verbatim and just changing the defendant's name. And the government found it hard to think that that was particularized pleading when it was the exact same thing in many different cases. Um, but, you know, anyway, to, to get back to, I think, you know, to step back a little bit now from the weeds, the defense bar has has long protested that uh, FC, that the whistleblowing provisions or the key town provisions of the False Claims Act has now become a lucrative business um, for repeat professional relators and others who bring, you know, meritless claims or certainly claims with no evidence of fraud, um, and then try to leverage the threat of defense costs and treble damages and and per claim penalties and government intervention. Um, so certainly an increased willingness by the the DOJ to intervene and, and dismiss meritless cases would be a very welcome relief. Um, you know, and then the last thing I would add in terms of what, what we're going to look forward to now into the future, um, we've got an attorney general nominee right now, William Barr, who years ago um, had actually was giving a, a speech about President Bush, and he said that he thought the key town provisions were, quote, basically a bounty hunter statute, an abomination, end quote, that, that he said that he wanted to attack. And uh, that caused some stir during his recent Senate Judiciary Committee hearings last week on his nomination. Um, I think he was repeatedly asked about his feelings about the False Claims Act, certainly by Senator Grassley, who's been the strongest proponent of the False Claims Act, um, whether he still thought the False Claims Act was an abomination. Um, and, and Mr. Barr stated that he was committed to diligently uphold the FCA. So it seems like um, his views have changed. Uh, at least that's what he stated. And, and if he's confirmed, we'll, we'll see if that's the case. Yeah, but I, I tell you what, he had to answer Grassley in the affirmative because if he didn't, Grassley would have you know, Grassley is a protector of whistleblowers and False Claims Act cases. And as a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons he ended up giving up his Senate Judiciary Committee chairmanship to take back over the Finance Committee uh, because Senator Hatch uh, was retiring so he could take it over. So he loves that stuff. So uh, Barr had to give him that answer. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Or else he wouldn't have gotten uh, very far without, you know, all the Republican support that he needs. So anyways, well, Jessica, thanks so much. This has been really uh, interesting. We appreciate your your time, your insights. Um, and if somebody, one of our listeners wants to reach out to you to talk about a False Claims Act issue, um, how do they how should they do so? Sure. Well, anyone should feel free to reach out to me at any time at my you can use my um, email address, J, just the letter J Sanderson at VolkovLaw.com. Um, and folks can also reach me or really any of the attorneys in the Volkov Law Group. We've all got experience in this area. Um, and you can do that through our website at VolkovLaw.com um, under the contact tab. And, um, you know, I also want to say reach out to me with questions about the False Claims Act or if you've got other areas of law that you're interested in and would like to see another uh, podcast in that area, you know, give us your suggestions. We're always open to suggestions. Um, but certainly in this area, the False Claims Act, we're going to continue to monitor the area. And if there's any important developments, we'll, we'll be posting those on our blog. So, um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to contact me or any one of our attorneys. Okay. Thank you again, uh, Jessica, and we appreciate it. And thanks to everybody. And we'll be back in touch uh, hopefully soon. 
Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bullpufflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, nbullpuff at bullpufflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your Thank you.